Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. So glad you could be with us today. My name is Matthew, and I'm the pastor here at Trinity Eastside. It's wonderful to get to worship with you, even remotely today. I'm going to be reading today from Genesis 22, and so if you have Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Genesis 22. We're going to read the first 14 verses of that chapter, and then we'll pray. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. And so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. And then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. And so the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so the two of them walked on together. And when they came to the place that God had shown them, Abraham built an altar there. He laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that as we're in this um, study, this season, together of looking at emotionally healthy spirituality, we thank you that What you're inviting us to do here is to partner with you. You who will provide a way for us to continue forward when we feel like we cannot. And so I just pray, God, for this morning as we are all in different places, not just geographically, but emotionally, spiritually, physically. Lord, I pray that you would please give us the energy through the Holy Spirit to listen to you, and to follow you where you're leading. Make us brave, God. Help us to trust you, to hear your voice. Lord, we love your voice. Would you speak now in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. So in 2005, I graduated uh, from music school, and I got a job back here in the Atlanta area as a worship pastor and a youth pastor because there's not a ton of jobs for people with music majors. And uh, my wife and I, Rebecca, we'd met in high school. We 
uh, dated through college. We got married while we were in college. We moved back here to what had been our hometown, the Atlanta area. And moving from Chicago to the suburbs was hard. Moving um, uh, from this big city to this little tiny church where almost everyone in there was significantly older than me was hard. There were a lot of things about, about that move that made it really difficult. But I had this like drive. I had this sense that like, <laughs> that, like I was supposed to be something. I was supposed to do something great. And, and so I thought that this is going to be where that's going to happen. This church is going to be that place. And God loved them. They let me, they let me try. Um, and so I just, I, I threw myself all the way in on this. Like I worked 60 hours a week in this little church, like running the youth group and mentoring kids and running the services and writing music and working with the band and doing pastoral care for whoever wanted to listen to the advice of a 24-year-old and uh, printing the bulletins and folding them and designing the website and just you name it, just all sorts of stuff, running around picking up Easter lilies on Easter Sunday, just, just doing every single thing I could to try to make this thing great. Um, and right around this time, Rebecca and I bought a fixer-upper. We took it all the way down to the slab. We had just a pipe remaining in the middle of the kitchen. And on weekends and in evenings, uh, I, with the help of some handy friends, learned how to do plumbing and electrical work and how to remodel a kitchen and how to lay hardwoods. And we painted every surface. And, and um, about a year passed. The house was coming together. And I was no longer just leading the youth group and leading Sunday services in music. I was now also on the preaching team, and, and it had been decided by the elders that they were going to begin to transition me into this role as the lead pastor of this church, and it was going to take about two years to get there. And so I'm just running and gunning. I'm preaching. I'm running the youth, youth service and I'm, all this stuff, and I'm just staying super busy. I'm working on the house at night and painting in, in the dark and all sorts of stuff. And then Rebecca gets pregnant. And we have our first child in the middle of this. And we just keep going because we just don't know what else to do. We're young. We don't have a ton of money. We just keep running. We're exhausted, but we just move on anyway. And over time, it just began to become clear to me that like this little church in Roswell was probably not going to be the place where I experienced the sort of greatness that I felt like I was supposed to be pursuing with my life and started to get a little bit of wanderlust. And Rebecca and I started to ask, maybe we should move back to Chicago. And I had a lot of energy around this idea of being like a cool urban church planter, like on the ground, gritty inner city, you know, that was all the cool pastors were doing at that point. And I wanted to be one of them. I wanted to be in that ilk. And so we started to pray about this. Rebecca was anxious to get back to the city where she felt at home. And so we're just asking God, like, basically, like, are you going to slam on the brakes or can we go? We prayed for a long time. And, and a, there was never a time during months of praying where a hand like appeared in the house and wrote on the wall above our couch, stay put. And so because of that, we just sort of assumed we must have a green light. Let's go ahead. And so while running the church and doing the preaching and the youth group and the music, we were meeting with backers and fundraisers and incorporating ourselves and building a core team to move to Chicago from Atlanta to plant this church and networking with church planners and going through church networks to, to get approved and all this stuff. And we're just counting down the days. Oh, and we had a second child in the middle of this. And we're just counting down the days till we can load up a moving truck and drive up I-65 and go back home because we just think if we can just get back to Chicago, then everything's going to be better. And that's when we hit the wall. That's when we hit the wall that saved our lives, that saved our marriage, our family, that rescued any hope that I might have of some sort of a future in this church thing. And when we hit that wall in spring of 2009, it felt like dying. 
I mean, everything began to become unraveled in our life. Our marriage became unraveled, and we weren't sure it was going to survive what we were going through. I had to walk away from my job at the church for a season. They gave me as an extended time to go and just get lots and lots of counseling and, and therapy. And over the course of, of that year, we spent thousands of dollars on therapy and spent hundreds of hours in silence and solitude by ourselves. And at the end of that long season of about two or three years, at the end of it, Rebecca and I walked out of it different people. And it wasn't like three years of chaos the whole time. There was actually, in the middle of it, there were, there were m- moments where we'd like come to a clearing. And that clearing, I-, I thought was actually like us coming out of the woods, but it wasn't. It was just like a glimpse. It was like a little moment of grace where God says, like, remember what the sky looks like? This is what you're working towards. And we're like, oh, okay, there's a clearing. And then back in the woods. And this went on for years. As we talk about... Um, emotionally healthy spirituality, one of the things that we have to talk about is the way that God uses seasons of severe testing and struggle and trial in our life to actually make us into people in his image. We're talking about that this week. It's not something that's popular to talk about. It's not something that we like to talk about in church. We'd rather avoid it. Most of us are spending a tremendous amount of energy and money to avoid something just like this. And yet, what we're going to look at today, this idea of sort of journeying through the wall What we're going to look at today is something that is utterly necessary if you want to become a person who grows in maturity and Christ-likeness. It is also deeply personal. Your pathway, your story is not going to sound like mine. It's not going to sound like the person sitting next to you. It's going to be deeply personal to you, and it's also fundamentally uncontrollable. It is something that will happen. You can't control it. It's just going to happen if we walk long enough with Jesus. When we talk about hitting the wall in our culture, we typically mean like running to the end of ourselves, like running to the end of our resources, like the end of our rope. So I have no more financial resources or physical resources or emotional resources, so I hit a wall. But the way that Pete Scazzaro describes hitting the wall in in emotionally healthy spirituality is more akin to the way that the ancient Christian writers and mystics talked about what's called the dark night of the soul. It is a long extended season of being remade of being essentially deconstructed down to a slab with nothing but a single plumbing pipe coming up from the ground and slowly being rebuilt and remade into someone else. It's a time where the things that used to work don't work anymore, no matter how hard we try. And we can't seem to, we can't just fall back into the normal anymore. We either agree with it or we run away from it. But if we agree with it, God will make something new out of us. It'll be the most fruitful, healing, powerful moment of your life. Our person helping us on this journey today is is Abraham. Abraham's a really important story in the Bible because uh, he's sort of the one that kicks the whole thing off. Genesis 12 is essentially the beginning of the story that then carries all the way to Jesus and to, to you and me. And the story of Abraham begins in Genesis 12 with Abraham as a 75-year-old man being told by God, leave your father's lands, leave your heritage, And venture out into a country that you do not know that is dangerous because I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to give you an heir to populate that land and build a nation on it. He was 75 years old. So think about how old he already was at that point. He's already old. And God says, I'm going to start something brand new with you. And Abraham faithfully packs up his stuff, packs up his house and leaves. Becomes a nomad and begins to wait for God to keep his promise which takes 25 years. 
For 25 years, Abraham waits for God to come through on his word. He gets a little impatient along the way, understandably, and takes matters into his own hands. His wife, Sarah, uh, suggests that he have a baby with her slave, Hagar, and he does, a little boy named Ishmael. But Ishmael was not God's plan for Abraham. Ishmael was Abraham's plan. So Ishmael's not the thing. He has to keep waiting. And finally, when he's 100 years old, miraculously, God gives him a son of promise. He gives him Isaac. And now after that, 25 years of waiting, he finally has this little boy. He begins to raise him up, and we're now 10, 15 years into the story. And we pick up today in Genesis 22 with these words. And after all these things, the Lord tested Abraham. And you talk about like how exhausted Abraham must be at this point. Like his whole life has felt like a test. 25 years of this liminal waiting for God to come through. And now the test begins. Now that word test is a really significant word because it will, say, it, will, it will dictate how you and I understand what God is like. If we think that God's tests are meant to trip us up and, and, and have us fall short, then we will always assume that a hard season that comes into our life is meant to in some ways harm us, that God's will behind it or his heart behind it is, is, is evil. It's not good. But the word that is used for test in Genesis 22.1 is a word that is actually meant to draw the goodness out of a thing that will only come out through pressure. It's this idea of like, I, like I want to see what comes out, what beauty will be revealed, and it's going to take this kind of circumstance for it to be uh, made manifest. In other words, we can understand that what God is actually doing in this is he is inviting Abraham into an environment, into a circumstance, a situation that is actually going to it's actually going to make Abraham more beautiful, make his life richer. Now, what is the test? The test is that he is supposed to sacrifice his son. He's supposed to bind his son. The rabbis called this story the Akedah. And Akedah is just a Hebrew word that means binding. It's the, that's the test. Will you bind your son and kill him? Now, of course, the question that you and I are asking at this point is, what kind of God would ever ask that kind of thing of another person? What kind of God would do that? And not to be overly trivial or simplistic, I'll just say like the question in the ancient Near East would have, would have been instead, what kind of God wouldn't ask a worshiper to do that? Child sacrifice, human sacrifice was all too common, tragically common in the ancient Near East cultic religions. And actually in this story, what God, the God of Israel is doing is he is differentiating himself from all other cultic deities of Canaan. He's actually saying, I'm not like them. They require the blood of your children, but I don't. But Abraham doesn't know that. <laughs> Abraham's not aware that that's what's about to happen. All that Abraham knows, the only thing he knows is that he has just lost Ishmael and now he's about to lose Isaac. If you look in your Bible and you go back one page to Genesis 21, it's a story that takes place more than a decade before Genesis 22, but they're put together on purpose, narratively. They actually use the same vocabulary and language to describe the, ex the expulsion of, of, of Ishmael and the sacrifice of Isaac. It's really fascinating, and if you want to hear more about that, come to the Q&A in a little bit. But he knows that in Genesis 21, he has lost Ishmael because Sarah's jealousy has brought her to a place where she kicks Hagar and Ishmael out. And so plan B goes out the door, and all that's left is Isaac, and God says, now I want you to kill Isaac. 
So when Abraham binds Isaac, he is binding his whole future, his legacy, all the promises of God, wrapping it, placing it on an altar, and holding a knife over it. Typically, when we run into the dark night of the soul, when you and I encounter a season of severe testing, when something comes into us, into our way, that is, that is disabling, that knocks us down, and it doesn't have to be circumstantial. It doesn't always have to involve external circumstances, although it usually does involve something that turns your life upside down. Cancer, the death of a child, a job loss, the death of a close friend. These are the sort of things that typically launch us into these seasons, but they don't have to. The external circumstance is not the most important part. It's actually what's happening internally. That's where the real work is being done. And typically when you and I encounter a season like this, we tend to do one of three things. One, we pretend it isn't happening. And we just continue to try to do the same old tired things, but they're not working anymore. And because of that, we grow really frustrated, which oftentimes will lead to the second thing, which is that we just abandon the whole thing altogether. There, you come to a place, in fact, maybe some of you watching this right now are in this place, where it just seems like it's going to be far easier to walk away from everything that I thought I once knew than it is to try to figure out how it fits now in my new understanding of God or of myself. It's just going to be easier to just leave it all together, to just call myself naive, overly simplistic. I was just raised in a Christian family. I didn't know any better. It's just simpler to just put it aside and say it must have been, it was a fairy tale for a time, but it no longer holds any relevance to my life, and to just venture away from the thing that you've always known. That's the thing that a lot of us end up doing in these seasons, and I've seen it again and again in my life as a pastor. That's the second thing we tend to do in this, but there's a third way. There's a third option for you and me. And it is to do essentially what Abraham did, which is not to act like it's not going on and not to leave the God who he had known his entire life, but to just lean into it. You may not understand what's going on. You probably won't understand everything that's going on, but just to take a step into it, to do the work, which is the work we're doing right now, by the way. When we look at family of origin, when we talk about knowing yourself and paying attention to what's going on in yourself, all of this is wrapped around this idea that like God wants to do a deep transformative work in you and me, and we have to be paying attention. We have to be deliberate. It's not going to happen on accident. It's not going to happen with five minutes a day of like reading a, a, a psalm. It's going to take some time. It's going to take some work. It's going to take some pressure for this sort of thing to be worked out. And so the third option is just to simply decide you're going to keep going. Early on in 2009, when we were going through our season, just the beginning of it, someone shared a quote with me from Winston Churchill, who has fallen on some really bad PR recently for good reason, but uh, I think this quote stands up anyway. Winston Churchill said famously, he says, if you're going through hell, keep going. If you're going through hell, and maybe right now you're going through hell, you who are watching this, like, what's your option? You can run away. You can act like it's not going on. Or you can just keep going. Abraham was able to keep going all the way to the time when he looks down on his son, whom he had waited his life for, and holds a knife up in the air. What enables Abraham to get to that moment? One of the great things about the Bible is it talks about itself sometimes. It talks about um, different stories. It sheds light on it. Because we don't have any idea what's going on in Abraham in this, right? I mean, you go back and you read it, there is zero data on what is happening internally for him. But thousands of years later, the Holy Spirit told the writer of Hebrews what was going on in Abraham. And this is what Hebrews 11 tells us was happening. 
by faith, Abraham, when put to the test, offered up Isaac. He who had received the promises was ready to offer up his only son, Isaac, of whom he had been told, it is through Isaac that descendants shall be named after you. Now how? This is it. He considered the fact that God is able even to raise someone from the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. The thing that enabled Abraham to walk up the mountain with the sword at his side and his son beside him carrying the wood for his own sacrifice was that Abraham believed to his core that God comes through. He keeps his promises. It tells us right here, he believed even if I kill my son, God can raise him. God's not going to fail in the promise that he told me. Now listen, you're not going to be tested the way Abraham has been tested because it'd be totally strange and out of context. If you hear a voice telling you to kill one of your children, that's not the Holy Spirit. It would be very strange. You should, you should not listen to that voice. But your testing will similarly feel like it's costing you everything. If you and I walk on the road with Jesus for long enough, there is going to be a time where he will turn back and look at you and say, it is time to let that go. It's time to put that down. The thing that God exposed in 2009 in me was, the, was the, the massive incongruity between my projected external self and my real internal self. Externally, I was this great godly pastor. Everybody like, talked about how much passion I had, but internally, my faith was mechanical. It was cold. It was artificial. I had no devotional life, no life in the Spirit. Externally, I was a happy family man. I was, I was a, a doting father. I was a loving husband, supportive. But internally, behind the walls, we, we were a mess. I was out three, four nights a week. I was abandoning my family. I was, I was working all the time. I was, the rest of the time, I was hanging out with friends to try to fill up my tank emotionally because I was so lonely and leaving my wife at home with two kids under the age of three. God had to expose just how broken things were in order for me to become a new person. He had to ask me to drop the things that I had been holding on to in tension so that he could make something new. One of my favorite scenes in The Passion of the Christ, it's, it is my favorite scene, is when Jesus is walking to Golgotha with the cross on his back. He's on what's called the Via Dolorosa, and his mother Mary is wa- watching from a distance as Jesus passes, and as he passes, he goes down. The weight of the cross becomes too great for him. He collapses under the weight and begins to crush his body. And Mary suddenly in that moment has a flashback. She remembers her little boy, Jesus, Yeshua, running across the hills of Palestine towards her and tumbling and falling because he tripped over a root or something. And she runs towards Jesus, her son, and scoops him up in her arms and carries him and comforts him. And she has this flashback and suddenly she comes to and they're in Jerusalem and there's her son being crushed under the weight of the cross in severe and extreme agony. And she snaps to and she begins to run through the crowd, pushing people out of the way as fast as she can to get to her son, and she kneels down next to him, helpless. She can't do anything to help him in this moment. She can't do a single thing to alleviate his discomfort. She's just there, doing all that she can do, and this is it. He looks up. He gets to his knees. He looks her in the eye, with blood in his eyes, and he says, see, mother, I am making all things new. See, mother, in this moment, even right now, I am making all things new. The reason that you and I can walk through the darkness, the long season of suffering, of being rebuilt, 
of a crisis of faith, of doubting everything you ever knew, the reason you and I can do it is because God has done it for us first. And his promises are sure that even when the darkness seems like it is winning, Jesus can look at you and say, see, even now, I am making all things new. A a verse that came to just mean a lot to me during this season was Psalm 27, the very end of the chapter. It says, I believe I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I held on to that verse for years. I believe I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then he says, wait for the Lord. Let your heart be brave and wait. And so wherever you are today in your journey with Jesus, may you have the grace and the courage and the stamina from the Holy Spirit to remain, to not run, because even in the darkness, Jesus is making you new. And God, we thank you that that is true, that we are not remaking ourselves, we are not refashioning ourselves, but the Spirit of God is doing that faithfully walking beside us. So God, I just pray for wherever a person is who's watching this, I pray, Lord, that you would whisper a word of comfort to them. Maybe they've already gone through a season like this, but they're likely going to go through a season like this again. It's just, it's just normal. I pray, Lord, that they would feel the presence of the Spirit reminding them in whose hands they are. We trust you. Come, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.